Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Again. We shall live again. 
Welcome to the Shaman's Brew. I'm Marcus Leder, and today we are going to explore a topic that I think many of you will find most interesting. I'm going to talk with you about herbs and power plants, what they are, and how to use them. For those of you who are new listeners, I was most fortunate to be an apprentice to a very wise and powerful Toltec shaman for eight years. Much of what he taught me is information that has been handed down from teacher to student by word of mouth alone. I have a book coming out soon that tells of this apprenticeship and reveals many of the word of mouth teachings, which, by the way, I have been given permission to reveal these teachings to a certain degree. In this show, I will be discussing the proper method of harvesting herbs and power plants their preparation and use, and a very powerful method for charging and empowering your herbs that I do not think any of you have ever encountered. We're going to talk about healing herbs, psychotropic or mind-altering herbs and plants, and real aphrodisiacs. So, what is the difference between an herb and a power plant. Technically, herbs can be considered to be power plants with a lower energetic resonance, while a power plant is a plant with a high energetic resonance and a consciousness that a human can interact with. Another way to look at it is to see the plants or herbs as entities containing an awareness and a spirit. Shamans learn early on that all plants have a spirit and awareness to the world around them, although it is a little different from human awareness. For example, the tea you drink comes from a leaf or some manner of herb and is aware of its existence before and after it is harvested for use, but its awareness 
of the human doing the harvesting or consuming it is very weak and is more of a uh, cognizant uh, awareness of an event taking place. It knows if it's harvested for a positive action intended for the benefit of another or if it is a careless, malicious action. The plant being harvested will react directly to the manner in which it is being harvested by changing its magical properties and sometimes physical properties in either a positive or a negative manner. This change can sometimes be detected in the taste or smell of an herb, or more likely it will change the effectiveness of the plant's magical properties by reducing the potency of the results or negating it entirely. This is one reason why I strongly recommend that you either gather your own herbs and plants for magical workings or at least get them from a source that can be trusted to have harvested them in a respectful, sacred manner. When shamans refer to power plants, they are speaking about a class of plants that has so much stored etheric energy and awareness that the spirit of the plant actually has the ability to communicate with the shaman and convey knowledge in a series of thought forms, sometimes referred to as visions. The more energetic the power plant, the stronger the information and visions, and also the more dangerous the plant. For example, one such power plant is the famous peyote. Shamans have used peyote cactus as a teacher and advisor for centuries trying to coax the spirit of the power plant to reveal the many secrets that it holds of this world and other worlds. This power plant can be thought of as a portal of information between the worlds. The shaman uses and treats this power plant with great respect and honor, only seeking its assistance with absolute impeccability and sincerity. They know to do this in any other way would result in a horrific experience and even death. The spirit of this power plant is so strong and defined that it has been given a name by Toltec shamans who respectfully refer to it as Mescalito. Although most power plants tend to fall into the category of psychotropics, such as peyote, psilocybin, datura, ayahuasca, and marijuana. There are many that do not, such as tobacco, ginseng, and surprisingly, jalapeno peppers. So now that we have a basic understanding of the difference between power plants and herbs, what is the proper method for their harvesting and empowerment and use? Let me start by telling you a story of how not to harvest herbs or plants. On one of my many excursions with my own shamanic teacher, we traveled to a spot in the Anza Borrego Desert to harvest some datura, also known as jimson weed. After listening to my teacher explain the do's and don'ts of the plant harvesting for the entire length of our two-hour drive, I finally said, come on. Are you telling me that a plant growing in the middle of the desert not only knows I am about to remove it, but that it could actually harm me? My answer was a silent stare that cut right through me. 
a stare that I knew all too well. At that moment, I wished I'd kept my doubting thoughts to myself, for I knew this was going to be one of those types of lessons, the type that always has a price and is often associated with fear or pain. We pulled into an area where we could park the car and continue walking through the chaparral until we came to an area that had a high concentration of Choya cactus. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the Choya cactus, but in my opinion, it is the most god-awful plant ever to grow on the planet. Growing up in the desert, I've had uh, many confrontations with this uh, cactus, uh, many accidents and much pain associated. The Choya is actually very beautiful and has a kind of an alien appearance. Growing usually no more than four or five feet tall, it spreads its one inch in diameter branches out in all directions. These branches are completely covered with razor-sharp microbarb needles about one to two inches in length with the diameter and strength of a sewing needle. The thing about these needles that I dislike the most is that they are so sharp that the slightest touch drives them under your skin, even through Levi's. Once they penetrated the skin, the microbarbs hold tight like a fishing hook. You have to take pliers to pull out a single barb, and man does it hurt. To make matters worse, they have a, a venom that feels like a bee sting. On one occasion, when I was in high school, I walked out of my house barefooted, not seeing the two-inch section of choya branch that had broken off and rolled to my doorstep under the force of the wind until it was too late. The pain was excruciating. I had to take a dinner fork and slide it between my foot and the body of the cacti and pull so hard that the fork bent in half and then I had to pull the rest of the barbs out with a pair of needle nose pliers. It was the worst Choya event I had ever encountered. My foot swelled up. Uh, it was throbbing pain. Uh, the, um, the only thing I'd ever seen that was worse involving a Choya happened with my dog. He went out into the chaparral one night and, and came back yelping on three legs with his rear leg tucked underneath him and pinned to his privates with a cluster of choya the size of my fist. Yes, indeed, it's such a lovely plant. But I am digressing way too much for this story. Um, I knew my teacher had chosen this spot for a reason. The reason was to teach me a lesson that I would not soon forget. Around a slight hill was a very large datura plant sitting right in the middle of a cluster of four-foot-tall choya cacti. There was about eight feet between the choya, so I was not too concerned, as only an idiot would walk too close you know, to cause any kind of problems. My teacher nodded toward the datura and said, go get it. I grabbed my cloth sack and shovel, and he stopped me and said, no, just go get it. I looked at him, wondering what he meant, and he explained that I was to be brutal and grab the plant at its base and yank it out of the soil and then walk back. 
I thought to myself, this can't be good. But I did as he said, and I, I grabbed the plant and yanked. The first attempt failed, and I damaged the plant and cut my hand. The second attempt, with two hands, proved to be successful. I stood there a moment with the damaged plant in my hand, half expecting to be struck by lightning when I heard my teacher laughing. He said in his most feminine voice, You are such a brute, Marcos. Just then I turned to walk back to the car and before I got two steps away, I felt a stinging ping in my right calf muscle. When I turned suddenly to see what it was that uh, something hit me in the butt with the same stinging pain. And then again in the kneecap. I found in all these places a single choya needle embedded about a quarter inch under my skin, except on the kneecap that was in the bone. This actually is a common phenomenon indigenous to the choya cacti. When it gets hot, as it was that day, the pressure under the needles get very high and they will occasionally explode outwards as far as 10 feet like a dart from a blowgun. Usually it is the wind or air currents or something passing too close that triggers the ejection, but today there was no wind and I was several feet away. I reached to pull out the most painful one on my knee and was hit again, so I started to run out of the area, stumbling almost immediately and falling face first toward one of the large choya cacti. I'm still not sure exactly what happened next, but as I was about to encounter a head-on collision with the dreaded choya, something or someone pulled me backwards with such a force that I found myself sitting on the ground six feet away from the cactus. My teacher was at least 20 feet away, and so he could not have physically pulled me. And later he would not comment on what happened, but I know he did something. He did something to save my butt. For the entire duration of the two-hour trip back, he insisted that I, talk, I not talk about it. He made me sit and hold the datura, which I felt stupid doing, but he, he made me sit and hold the datura plant and apologize in every way possible to the spirit of the datura for being such a thoughtless barbarian. He said, with any luck, she, referring to the spirit of the datura, Will forgive me and spare my life. He had a twinkle in his eye on that comment, so I knew he was joking. I think. The point of the story is to always honor the plant or herb that you harvest, whether it be a mint leaf or a powerful psychotropic, and always ask permission before doing so. Afterwards, Give thanks to the universal spirit of the plant, and never take more than you need. This will ensure your medicinal or magical success and protect your own energy body from negative effects at the same time. After you harvest your plant, the next step would, uh, would be physical preparation, which varies from plant to plant and includes uh, drying, cleaning, chopping or grinding, and uh, separation of root, stem, leaf, and seeds, you know, that type of thing. The, 
Various methods for different plants will be covered in detail when my book comes out, containing many of these word-of-mouth teachings. After the physical preparation is complete comes the most important and often overlooked step of all. The plant or its parts must be empowered so that the properties of the plant are greatly magnified. This can be done by a shaman that has energy manipulation abilities, or it can be accomplished by anyone placing the plant or its parts in a cloth bag and hanging it at least six feet off the ground tied to the trunk or large branch of any tree except the elm. The bigger the tree, the better. This is then left in place for an entire lunar cycle before it can be removed. During this time, the life force of the tree will flow into the plant and merge with the life force of the plant, creating small vortexes of chi energy that emulate the magical properties of the plant, similar to how a, a strong magnetic field will in time magnetize the molecules of iron, emulating the lines of magnetic force. Using this method will greatly multiply the effectiveness of any plants or herbs you use for both uh, healing and magical work. Try it. You will feel the difference the very first time. The shaman, as our masters at uh, herbal magic and medicine, and it would take me hours and hours to even scratch uh, the surface of their knowledge, so at least until my book comes out, I will just make mention of a few never-before-published Toltec shamanic herbal concoctions. One classic example is a Toltec summoning smoke. It consists of a mixture of one single datura leaf, dried and finely chopped, a sprig of wormwood finely chopped, and about a half-inch chunk of copal coarsely um, ground into a powder. Copal is a, uh, is a resin uh, found in uh, trees in Mexico and Central America. To this, you add uh, about a half a handful of any type of sage leaf available, coarsely ground. Mix this up, blending it together, with a focused intent of the desired results, which in this case is the summoning of an entity. And when you burn it on a charcoal block or a uh, small uh, open fire, you perform your summoning mixture the way you, uh, uh, your summoning ritual the way you normally would. Just burn this on the block or in a small fire. One word of advice here, be careful in what you're summoning. This stuff works, and sometimes works too well. Another example of a totally unheard of Toltec mixture is an extremely powerful and effective aphrodisiac using three ingredients that can be ingested or burned as an innocent, unsuspecting incense. I bet that woke a lot of you up. Yep, little will your mate know that the sweet-smelling incense smoldering in the burner 
is about to cause an intense smoldering in another vessel. But before you start making plans, uh, let me explain that one of the ingredients of this mixture is very hard to find and um, it exists only in one part of the world. It is the entire body of a grub worm that is indigenous to Mexico and Central America. I'm currently attempting to procure a source for this ingredients and once I do I um, will be offering it on my websites uh, sacredsoils.com and theshamansbrew.com uh, for that and whatever other ingredients that it uh, may take will, will be available on my website at that time. But I'm so far I've not procured it so you'll just have to keep checking my website and see when it uh, becomes available. The other um, two ingredients of this uh, aphrodisiac incense are dried damania leaves and small mesquite shavings. A tea can be made with this mixture and sipped for but for best results it should be burned as an incense. Again, this and many other healing magical and other herbal schematic mixtures will be revealed in my uh, future books. In summary, know the difference between herbs and power plants before working with them and always, always, always harvest them by asking permission first and then thanking them for sacrificing their lives for your cause and never take more than you will need. Then prepare the plant in the proper way for its use and then charge the plant within the energetic field of a large tree for an entire lunar cycle. I might add too that when you uh, store the plant, it should be stored in a glass jar in the darkest area you can find or cover it so that light cannot filter in. You will find a dramatic increase in your herbal work in closing this lesson on herbs and power plants, I would like to share with you one last story about uh, personal power. And a story about my teacher, myself, and an earthworm. One summer day, my, my teacher and I were walking to the park in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where I live. Walking along the street, I noticed a small earthworm trying to make its way across the hot pavement while cars zoomed by. I immediately raced out into traffic and picked up the worm and brought it to safety, placing it on some moist grass. Thinking that I had executed a very honorable and noble deed, I turned to my teacher to receive his acknowledgments of praise, but instead he stared at me intently and said, why did you do that? I was set back by his statement and didn't answer until he repeated his question again. I said, to save the worm's life, of course. His chances of survival were next to none. My teacher objected to my action, stating that, how did I know that the worm wanted to be saved? Perhaps it was time to die, and that I had no right to alter its destiny. He continued saying, that if the worm had enough personal power, it would have made it on its own, 
and if it did not, then it would meet its destiny and die. With an audience of about six people listening to our debate about the life of a worm, it became a, I became a bit angry and replied back that, how does he know that the worm's personal power was not sufficient to save its life? After all, it was able to capture my attention and cause me to take the life-saving actions. To me, that sounds like one damn powerful worm. My teacher scoffed and said, Marcus, come, I will buy you lunch. I knew right then that I had finally won the debate. Is it right to use your own free will to alter the destiny of another? And in doing so, do you change the destiny? Or is your action part of the natural flow of destiny? Thank you for listening. I hope I have helped to illuminate your path through this amazing, magical universe. Now it is with great pleasure that I welcome back the incredible Mr. Vincent Price, who is going to talk with us about spells and curses. I present to you the master of the macabre, Mr. Vincent Price. Many of the most effective and time-honored methods of bewitching a man to death call for combining your verbal curses with the destruction of a little figure or doll representing that person. How about a few more cheerful spells, hmm? Perhaps you want to make someone fall in love with you. Now that's cheery. <laughs> ah, with magic to help you, that's easy to achieve. Fashion the likeness of the one you wish to bewitch in wax, making it fair and beautiful naturally. Be sure to use in its making something from the body of the beloved, hmm? a few hairs, nail clippings, or anoint it with a drop of their blood, if you happen to have it, or a sample of their sweat, both particularly efficacious in magic. Then take a piece of fabric from some intimate garment stolen from your love and dress the doll in it. Each night at midnight on three successive nights during the full moon, Take the image to a lonely place, raise it to the moon, and say these words thrice. The spirits of the night will make this person, and here, of course, you must mention their name, will make this person ready for me in body and in mind. Then the following night you will go to your love and he will be unable to resist you. Do you believe it? I do. Oh, yes, there are many love charms you can use. Here's a formula that never fails. When the night is soft and the winds are ripe with the scent of sweet flesh, pluck the most crimson rose from the garden and place the dew-fresh petals in a five-pointed star beneath the window of your beloved. Now whisper her name or his name to the night wind three times. Say nothing more. Love will be sealed between you unto death and beyond. In immortality you will be one and the same in heart and spirit. The medieval true grimoire gives a detailed formula for <laughs> seducing a girl. 
Preparations are made during the waxing moon. Write in your blood the girl's name on a piece of virgin parchment. Draw a magic circle in the usual way, and at midnight, holding a lighted taper, invoke the spirits as follows. I salute and conjure thee, O beautiful moon. I conjure thee so that you may send down power to oppress, torture, and harass the body and soul, and the five senses of, and here you use the name of the victim, shall we say, Angela de' Medici, hmm? she whose name is written here in my blood, so that she shall have no choice but to come unto me and submit to my desires. For so long as she shall remain unmoved by me, let her be tortured and made to suffer. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you prefer the love potion, you can get good results from this one. Take yellow rose petals, carrot roots, belladonna, a poisonous plant, soot, and pure water from a stream. Brew these ingredients with wine in a pot and give the liquor to your love to drink. <laughs> Candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Methinks she should die of love for you after swallowing that. Or she must love you very much to accept it in the first place. <laughs> or she might just die. Perhaps you have reason to doubt your girlfriend's uh, chastity. Well, if you do, try this. Find the stone called the lodestone of a pale blue color, which is found in the Indies and in part of Germany or on the coast of France. Lay this stone under the head of the girl, and if she is faithful to you, she will rise up and kiss you. But if she is unfaithful, she will fall out of bed It has always been recognized by the wise that to make a woman chaste and faithful is the hardest thing in all the world to do. But if the object of your love is married to another, it is not impossible to separate them. You must write the names of the victims on a new-laid egg while standing in a graveyard when there is no moon. Then to intone the following invocation, I conjure you, O luminaries of heaven and earth, as the heavens are separated from the earth, so separate and divide Jonathan Hubbard and his wife Abigail, in the name of the twelve hours of the day and the three watches of the night and the seven days of the week and the thirty days of the month and the seven years of Shemitah and the fifty years of Jubilee on every day in the name of the evil angel. Inshmael, who preside over pain, inflammation, and dropsy. Now, break the egg and eat it raw. Ooh. Well, when that's done, prepare to cast a love charm upon Jonathan or Abigail, as the case may be. Thus, your objective will be obtained. <laughs> it's much simpler than a divorce. So, those are some of the magic secrets of love and eroticism. But I wonder, should I tell you the greatest secret of them all? Hmm? Well, yes, I've gone this far. I suppose I should. But this is for the ears of females only. If there is a man at your side, send him away, for he should not know this. What every young girl should know. In all the history of witchcraft and magic, since how many thousands of years we cannot know, 
there is another charm, the most antique and efficacious of them all, compounded of fire, pain, and passion, used by women throughout the ages to enmesh the hearts of men and enslave them in the web of love forever, and used by some who know its power today. It is the magic cake, it is also called the conferiatio, which from furthest Asia to Europe and the New World has ever been the sacrament of love. Its purpose is to bind not only the soul but also the flesh, so that dead to all other women, the man shall live and breathe for this one only. It is no trifling matter, girls. <laughs> the woman cannot perform this magic alone. She must have the help of another woman, a witch. The witch strips the suppliant to the skin. She must then lie naked on her back with candles burning. The witch now lays a wooden board upon the woman's loins, and on that a small brazier of burning charcoal with a miniature oven. In this she bakes the magic cake. The dough is made much like any other of flour or meal, butter, eggs, milk, sweetened with honey. But this cake must also be seasoned and hotly spiced with the passion and anguish of her loins. She will now take the cake to the man she loves and give it as a gift for him to eat before her eyes. At the first bite she feels a strange tumult of the senses, a giddiness. His heart beats faster. His blood rises and grows hot. His face is flushed with blushes and his body burns. He is seized by the madness we call love and a raging, inextinguishable desire rises in him that will burn each time he looks upon this woman until the day he dies. Of course, there are magic charms and spells for every purpose, for good and evil, attack and defense to counteract and nullify other charms. An old English charm used for centuries as a defense against maleficent witchcraft covers any kind of curse or evil charm. Listen to this. Blackluggy, hammerhead, rowan tree and red thread, put the warlocks to their speed, now the witch's spell is dead. Before we leave the mysterious secret world of charms and spells in which anything is possible, we must dwell for a moment on a certain, shall we say, unsavory item in the witch's magic armory in olden times, the hand of glory. Are you familiar with this deadly and terrifying talisman of death? Well, you should be. At one time, they say, no witch would think of being without one. It was usually kept on the mantle above the chimney piece, along with other grisly relics and paraphernalia of magic. What is it? Well, let me tell you. According to a medieval instruction, in order to prepare the hand of glory, you must go to a gallows beside a highway and cut off the right hand of a felon who is hanging there. Wrap the severed hand in a shroud and squeeze it out as dry as you can. Then put it into an earthen jar with a powder composed of salt, saltpeter, and hot peppers. Leave it in the pot for two weeks. Then take it out and place it in the hot sun during the dog days until it becomes quite dry. In this hand, you will then place a candle using the hand as a candlestick. 
you will make the candle of virgin wax, sesame, and the fat of a gibbeted fellow. When the candle is lit and carried in the hand of glory, it will stupefy anyone you meet with terrible magic and render them motionless, thus incapable of resisting your will at all. As the ancient verses go, wherever that terrible light shall burn, vainly the sleeper may toss and turn, his leaden eyes shall ne'er unclose so long as that magical taper glows. Life and treasure shall he command, who knoweth the charm of the glorious hand. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of use levered in the moon's eclipse. Nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth, strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab. Make the gruel thick and slab, add thereto a tiger's chaudron. All the ingredients of our cauldron. Double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Pour in sow's blood that hath eaten her nine pharaoh. Grease that sweeten from the murderer's gibbet. Throw into the flame. Black spirits is wild. Red spirits in gray feel a strange tingling in your body? Do you feel a pricking of your thumbs? Well, that's a sure and certain sign that the time to go to the Sabbath has come. The Sabbath, the great ceremonial gathering of witches, a wild revelry at dead of night in some lonely, desolate spot, a heath, a forest clearing, or some forbidding, craggy mountaintop. Witches come from miles around, sometimes a, a mere thirteen, but more often scores of them, hundreds, sometimes even thousands, for this is the great triumph and glorious pagan celebration of the old religion. Do they worship Satan here? Who but a witch can say for sure? For the accounts in old documents differ greatly. Some say no, but most say yes. And naturally, modern witches tell you <laughs> never. Who knows? I'm sure that many different Sabbaths, varying greatly, have been celebrated at different times throughout the centuries, and that the devil was the guest of honor, revered and worshipped as often as not. Let us attend an early medieval Sabbath, shall we? The place is France, the time, the 12th century. As the hour approaches, the witch prepares. She strips herself naked and massages the magic ointment laced with delirious narcotic poisons into her body. Then, in fact or fancy, she flies up the chimney, over the fields, marshes and forests, to the appointed secret place. Imagine the scene. Bright resinous fires flicker and blaze with blood-red embers 
and darting sparkling yellow tongues of flame, casting dancing shadows on the assembled people gathered in the murmuring restless excitement of anticipation beneath the phantasmagoric pall of drifting sparks and smoke. There stands the officiating priestess called the Ancient One, although she may be young and beautiful. One witness describes her as a sorceress of seventeen, a pretty woman and atrociously cruel. She has the face of Medea, the beauty of Our Lady of Sorrows. Deep-set eyes, tragic, restless, wild. Her dark hair, an untamable torrent falling wildly around her shoulders like writhing serpents. And on her head a crown of vervain, the deadly ivy, and the violets of death. The blood-red firelight bathes her sinuous body as she raises her arms before the altar. The Sabbath has begun. First comes the denial of God, feared by the peasants who are still pagan at heart. Now she turns to the image of Satan, a great wooden idol, horned and shaggy, with all the virile attributes of a satyr of Pan. She pays homage, kneeling to kiss him under the tail. Then it is his turn to consecrate his priestess. The wooden god welcomes her as Priapus of antiquity welcomed his female adorers. She gives herself to him and sits upon him for a moment as the priestess of the shrine of the Oracle of Delphi sat upon the phallic tripod in the temple of Apollo. There follows feasting and drinking, wine, mead, hard cider, and perry, beverages to inflame the mind, perhaps laced with delirious belladonna. And the dance begins, the music Men and women dance in whirling frenzy in notorious witches round, back to back in circle, counterclockwise, faster and faster, in a possessed, abandoned madness of giddy delirium. Then there are the most solemn rites, a parody of the Eucharist. The witch priestess is herself the altar, prostrate on her back, arms outstretched, her hair trailing in the dust. The devil himself forms the rites upon her loins. The figure of a man, masked, horn, clothed in a goatskin. What is the host? Who knows? It was many things at different times. Sometimes it was the sacred passion cake. Now she rises at last. She raises her arms to heaven, not in adoration, but in defiance of God whose dominion she has usurped and mocked. In a great shrill voice she cries out, appealing to the lightning, the thunderbolts of heaven to strike her dead. There is awed silence. No thunder is heard, no lightning strikes. And God, having made no reply to her taunts, is considered vanquished. A wave of derisive laughter rolls over the crowd. Some of the people perform small miracles to impress and astonish the incredulous crowd. Toads, believed mistakenly to be deadly poisonous, are bitten and mangled in their teeth. Unharmed, they leap over the blazing fires, scattering glowing embers in mockery of the fires of hell. At this, the people join in the revelry in a frenzy of triumph, men and women, abandoning themselves to the pleasures of physical love 
in an uncontrollable outpouring of pent-up passions. But as time goes by, the witch's Sabbath assumes a more sinister, a more decadent aspect. Here are a few samples from the works of a medieval writer who specialized in the subject. After the dancing was done, he gleefully relates, each person seized whomever was nearest for his carnal pleasure, father with daughter, son with mother, brother with sister, with no regard for the laws of nature or of God. To this very day, in towns and villages in England, Germany, France, America, witches gather to the Sabbath in misty, darkling, doleful, secret places, perhaps this night, perhaps this very hour. The old rites are celebrated, that we know for certain. Cosmic power is raised and spells and charms are cast. Are the old abominations practiced? The sacrifices, the orgies, the satanic kiss of shame? That I cannot say for sure, for if they are, surely no witch would admit it publicly. It's my belief that at most Sabbaths none of this is done, but at others. Would you like to hear a few strange tales, true stories printed in modern newspapers, stories that make you wonder? Ancient witch centers are scattered all over the British Isles, Modern witches still use many of them, including Chantonbury Ring in Sussex, which is famous as the most haunted place in England. A coven called the Moonrakers meets to this day at Gorse Hill near Swindon, a site frequently chosen for the Sabbath for over 1,500 years. There are several covens of avowedly black witches in London, even today. There is one in Sherwood Forest, another in Brockenhurst. There are two in Hove, the Merry Order of St. Bridget and the Order of Sybil, both satanic, flagellant covens practicing worship of the devil, the black mass, communal whipping, ritual orgies, and the raising of demons for malefic purposes. Not so long ago, a sacred chalice was stolen from an old church in Dorsetshire, it reappeared on the altar a few days later, stained with blood. Then early one morning, as some men were setting out to work, walking through the mist that hung over Tootingbeck Common, they were startled to come upon a gruesome sight. The severed head of a pig stared at them from the grass. Around it, arranged in a mystic triangle, were three pagan wooden crosses, each five feet high. Who knows what rites had been performed that night? Where does it all lead? Time moves in a great, eternally turning cycle spanning 28,000 years. The cycle is divided into 12 cosmic ages, each lasting 2,160 years by the calculations of astrologers. For some 2,000 years now, under the dominating influence of Pisces, mankind has been shackled by the belief that he was born in 
original sin, born to suffer, doomed before his life could even begin. This has been the dismal Piscean age of Kali Yuga, the age of darkness and despair. But now, are we on the threshold of the victorious age of light? Is this the dawning of the age of Aquarius? Now at last, we are beginning to understand and accept that our birthright is not suffering, doom, despair, and the denial of the flesh, but joy, vigor, brightness, fulfillment. The dark age is passing, and with it we are returning to the old religion, which has been called witchcraft, witch. The craft of the wise. We are no longer earthbound. To be sure, we reach for the stars in spaceships, but that in itself is nothing, merely physical. What is important is that the spirit reaches out into infinity, marveling at the fact that it is free, and we are just a tiny speck of dust in the awful immensity of the cosmos. One little planet in one little solar system, in one of a hundred thousand million galaxies like our own. And in the midst of this, science has discovered what mystics, witches, and magicians have known for millennia, that neither time nor space nor matter are absolute or what they seem to be. The old restricting physical laws and limitations have been transcended opening up forever the limitless reaches of the fourth dimension, the sixth sense, the world of the power of the spirit and of the mind. Nothing is impossible in the age of Aquarius. The final limitless age of magic has arrived. Magic is everywhere, always. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.